Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings, I'm Tricia Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Today, our interview is with Ian Ray, and the book is No Little Plans, How Government Built America's Wealth and Infrastructure, published by Routledge in 2019. Today's guest is Ian Ray, and the book is No Little Plans, How Government Built America's Wealth and Infrastructure, published by Routledge in 2019. Hi, Ian. Welcome to the show. Hello. Good to be here. Well, thank you so much. And we've built up quite an audience on this category. I just want to let them know that we're enjoying a cup of tea uh, transcontinental here this morning. (laughs) From the Keys to London or, or to, to merry old England. Yeah, cups, um, of, cups of tea across the Atlantic, yeah. A cup of tea across the Atlantic, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, Ian, thank you for being here. And can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm, I'm a town planner and I was in professional practice until 2012. 2010 full-time um, when I left to join Liverpool University as a visiting professor. Um, I worked in the 1980s as a freelance journalist, mainly writing for the Architects Journal in London. So I've written a lot, vast numbers of articles and papers. And I write uh, more like a journalist perhaps than an academic. I write to uh, engage people as well as um, educate them. And um, uh, I've written uh, two or three books, edited a couple of books. The American Plans book is my most recent book. Um, Prior to that, I wrote a book on uh, great British plans, who made them and how they worked. So really, the American book is, is a sequel to the English book. And it's... Um, like the uh, like the book on British plans, it's inspired really by the same uh, author, my uh, friend Professor Sir Peter Hall, who died a couple of years ago, uh, brilliant planning academic. He wrote a book called Great Planning Disasters, which put uh, very unsuccessful big plans under the microscope and asked what went wrong. And the purpose of both my books, both the British one and the American ones, is to put very successful plans um, under the microscope and, and ask, um, how do we do that? How do it? So what was your motivation for writing this particular book? Well, it was partly because uh, when I'd been working as a professional planner, I'd found the system getting more and more complex and full of complex regulations and procedures and processes. And I, I, I in the last few years as a professional planner, working professional planner, I, I just thought, you know, how on earth did we ever get things done? The system seems so complex and so opaque these days. Um, so I, w- I was intrigued by the fact that planning academics didn't actually seem to have written all that much about plans that have gone well. Academics seem to love problems and things that have gone badly. But um, as a, as a whole, as a generality, they don't really seem to have specialised in putting success under the microscope and saying, well, you know, how did we actually do that? Uh, I don't know why that is. Um, some academics, particularly people in business schools, are interested in success stories. But my perception, maybe it's mistaken, is that that's much less true of uh, other planning academics, including planning academics. So I wanted to have a look at success and see how it worked. Oh, I love that. Yeah, how we what we did right is is important to copy too. It certainly is, yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to know how things had, had actually gone well in the past. And it started out in fact both books started out as purely empirical inquiries. I just selected what seemed a wide range of variety of plans that had gone well and and I asked how how it had happened. Um but um, the, the, as, as both books developed, but particularly the American book, I began to see that I was, I was, 
I was assembling all this empirical information on plans that had gone well, you know, going back as far as uh, the first national parks, building the transcontinental railroads and, and taking the story right the way forward to almost the 21st century with uh, the, uh, the moonshot and uh, the, the internet. Um, and I began to see that this empirical evidence was actually starting to form a body of evidence that you could use to to challenge the uh, rather overweening ideology we've been uh, labouring under since the 1970s, the sort of laissez-faire neoliberalism, the Milton Friedman stuff about companies only have to take their shareholders' interests in account and, and government is so weak that it's it's worse than ineffective, all summed up in that phrase of uh, Ronald Reagan's, um, the tense, scariest words in the English language are, hello, I'm from government and I'm here to help. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that that's a very good point, is that, um, you know, there's a lot of great uh, and, and interesting uh, achievements that, that our government has done. Um, and it's, and I really like that we have, you know, an outsider's perspective because it's hard to be objective when you're kind of in it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, this is interesting. So what, what did we do right? What, how did you, you divide this book into three sections. Why is that? How did, how's it laid out? Well, it's laid out, yeah, as you say, in three sections. The first section is called American Retreat. Um, and that really talks about the rise and fall of rational planning in America. Um, it talks about the rational planning um, techniques which were really first brought into American society and later into world society by people like uh, Sloan in General Motors in the 1920s and 1930s, then hugely built on by um, a whole variety of management experts. And... Um, um, developed in particular by um, Robert Strange McNamara, to give him his full title. He was an absolutely brilliant businessman, um, developed these techniques largely during the Second World War, took them into the Ford motor industry, and became a, a brilliant strategist and operator, and was recruited by uh, President Kennedy to move into government, became Secretary of State for Defence. So he took with him this huge body of rational planning techniques, which in the 1960s spread all over the world, in fact, and, and moved into industry, commerce, city planning, even subjects like geography, which is looking to produce a new, give a new face to the world, a quantitative face to the world. And those... Uh, Techniques, of course, underlay the uh, what the French call uh, les trente glorieuses, the, the the glorious thirty years after the Second World War, where where Western society seemed to be on a continuously upward path, um, but um, were really brought down in the late nineteen sixties and seventies, and they were brought down with a kind of uh, pincer attack, if you like, from the right wing through people like Hayek, Friedman, Thatcher. Um, uh, Ronald Reagan, Milton Friedman. Uh, so from the right-wing economists who, who, who were attacking the notion that we could have effective rational planning, but at the same time, in a rather sort of a bizarre coincidence of, uh, of odd bedfellows, if that's the right phrase to use, they were attacked by uh, people on the left-wing um, including Jane Jacobs, whose philosophy was basically libertarian, actually, rather than socialist, and uh, also, of course, by uh, Rachel Carson in Silent Spring, who attacked the whole basis of uh, rational, planned industrial society. So after that great 30-year run, um, it all came crashing down in kind of around about 19, 1968. So that's the first part of the book, really, that story about how it, how it all came falling down and what the consequences then were for... Uh, American society. Before I move into uh, the next part of the book, which is uh, it's kind of like a, like a roller coaster ride. The next part of the book, looking at the case studies, is a kind of upbeat look at the great success stories. And you've got uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight categories of of lots of case studies of good things 
uh, you know, in particular, since this is kind of the architecture, and <clears throat> I got my master's degree in landscape architecture, um, let's start with uh, what about the uh, national parks? How has that benefited um, the United States? How is that a success story? Well, it's an amazing success story. And, uh, you know, I, I had uh, three years taught as a, as a geographer and then two years as a planner. I, I even did a course on North America. I can't, Im- I can't remember anybody teaching me how the national parks came into existence. But, you know, the national park story, which has spread across the world, was an American invention. It's a great American plan, an example of great American planning. It came uh, philosophically from uh, uh, David Thoreau, uh, the, the, the author of uh, Walden or Life in the Woods back in the 19th century. It came from the transcendental philosophers like Ralph Waldo Emerson, who taught Americans basically to value nature and wildlife just as they valued money. And it came from the great Scot, uh, John Muir, who, who moved to America when he was a boy and became a huge environmental campaigner for the preservation of wildlife, uh, national parks and the great outdoors. And it was really because of... Uh, uh, Muir's campaigning in the late 19th century, and then the relationship he formed with President Theodore Roosevelt, who was the great greatest conservation uh, conservationist president America's ever had, without a doubt. I mean, there have been others, including uh, his uh, successor of the same name. Um, I'm not quite sure whether uh, your current president quite shares their objectives, but there have been great conservationist presidents. Jimmy Carter was another great conservationist president so 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 obsessed with wild rivers that um, apparently some people thought he was absolutely cookie but uh the whole concept of having natural parks and looking after nature is simply a great american success story but it's a story really that was driven by government by the american government when theodore roosevelt said yeah we're going to do this well that's true and um you know our our national parks like here in the keys uh we have some John Benny Camp and uh, Daddy Johnson uh, parks here, and there are so many people that visit them, and they have to almost have traffic control. Uh, and what that also brings for the community, it's uh, a lot of businesses are thriving be- just because they're right beside the national state parks. Yes, that's absolutely true. I mean, the the, the visits to national parks have absolutely rocketed um, over the last three or four decades. So. On the one hand, yeah, sure, it's a success story, but it's a success story which needs to be very, very carefully managed. Um, sometimes the management has not been what it what it should have been. I mean, the critics say there has been far too much emphasis placed on recreation and pulling the visitor numbers in, um, which is President Trump's view that we ought to carry on just using them really as commercial assets. Others would say they've not done enough to protect the natural environment. But really, that's just about the, the details of how these places are managed. And it doesn't really detract from the huge success in creating them and protecting them. I mean, I've been to Niagara Falls. I don't know. Have you been to Niagara Falls? Niagara Falls, wonderful natural asset, um, but was not protected by any kind of uh, national park institution. And in many ways, the kind of uh, the, the natural wonder of uh, Niagara Falls has been destroyed by inappropriate development far too close to it, giving everybody a view from their bedroom, hotel bedroom window of the majesty of the falls, but unfortunately spoiling the majesty for everybody else. You can still stand there and get wet under the falls, so that still works. But you don't have this feeling of being out in nature, out out in the raw, out in the cold, um, out in the wild. And that's what the national parks have preserved, basically. Well, that's true. Uh, no, I haven't been there. It's on my bucket list. Um, but, <laughs> but I would be. It would be bad if I didn't mention. You know, the Everglades is right next door. It just going out there and, and walking through the woods and, uh, and and all its and and, and its value is uh, just. I don't know. You can't really put a price tag on it. No, there's a there's an absolutely uh, absolutely wonderful. Um, quote which i'm trying to find now from ralph waldo emerson from his book uh 
called Nature, which was published in the 1890s. And uh, this, is a, this is a terrific quote. He says, um, crossing a bare common in snow puddles at twilight under a clouded sky, without having in my thoughts any occurrence of special good fortune, I have enjoyed a perfect exhilaration. I am glad to the brink of fear. In the woods, too, a man casts off his years as the snake his slough. And at whatsoever period of life is always a child in the woods is perpetual youth. So that's a brilliant piece of writing, but also incredibly persuasive piece of philosophy that makes people value nature for what it is, basically. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I, I so love So go read those, that so. book, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Nature. <laughs> I will. I, I think I, I have it actually here somewhere. It's too bad I can't interview him. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an interesting interview. That would be a good interview. Um, okay, let's go on to another one. This is um, something I'm kind of interested to. My brother lived in Vegas, um, and I've been to the Hoover Dam. Uh, so what do you think about, you, you mentioned here, deals and dams. What What is that all about? Well, that's another um, uh, another example of, uh, of great American plans. Um, if only uh, by virtue of the sheer scale of the operation, and it, it's something that not a whole lot of people know about. Um, basically, the uh, view taken, and again, this goes back to Theodore Roosevelt, um, who was a conservationist, but a kind of utilitarian conservationist. He didn't really believe in nature for its own sake. He believed in managed nature for the the good of humanity. Um, Theodore Roosevelt became uh, really attached to the views which were being expressed by a lot of people uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century, that if there was more effective um, irrigation of the American West, it would turn the American West into, rather than a kind of semi-desert environment, which so much of it is, apart from the the immediate coastal strip, it would turn the American West into um, a huge orchard, a huge um, opportunity for growing fruit and vegetables. So, it was it was Roosevelt who set the ball rolling by creating the American uh, Bureau, Land Reclamation Bureau, to start building dams and to irrigate the Far West. And that that is a process that continued all the way through the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. And of course, the Bureau is still in existence and has built hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dams and hundreds of miles if not thousands of miles of irrigation infrastructure, in particularly in the in the in the American West, without that infrastructure and without that irrigation, not only would the, the agriculture not exist in the American West, but neither would many of the cities which now depend on it: uh, Los Angeles, uh, Las Vegas, uh, all those great cities of the American West really have been built in in virtually desert surroundings. Um, you know, again, there are critics of the way the Bureau worked because certainly up until the um, late 60s, early 70s, no concern was expressed for nature conservation or uh, the environments which were being lost when the dams were built. But you still can't uh, deny that it is an absolutely colossal American achievement and an example of um, the state in action. In fact, curiously enough, it's it's one of the few examples of state investment, state planning that Milton Friedman actually grudgingly acknowledges in uh, in one of his books as something which is a valuable activity of the state. Um, so again, it's it kind of gives the lie to um, Reagan's, um, in my view, ridiculous remark about uh, when anybody arrives from the government and says they're here to help, um, things are going to fail because that is not actually the case. It's patently not the case. It's not the case in case of national parks and dams, but it's not the case either in the case of more basic infrastructure like railroads, the interstates, um, the moonshot, or, or planning for New York for them, for that matter. Yes, that's true. And, you know, I, I will go back to uh, the first one you talk about, uh, the shining roads, the, the building of railroads um, uh, down here. There was the Florida East Coast Railroad that Flagler uh, built uh, 
here in up and down in Florida and the overseas highway. Uh, can you talk about, yeah, the first ones was our infrastructure was just railroads. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, it's true that, you know, the railroads effectively built America and they are still an incredibly important part of uh, America's freight distribution infrastructure. But um, when I talk to people about American railroads um, in this country, they always start with um, with a, what is um, a natural assumption that, well, hey, weren't they all built by the robber barons? Weren't they all built by the private sector? Well, yeah, they were. The transcontinental railroads were built by private companies. But what people don't understand is that the private companies, right from the outset, were hugely supported by government. The initial companies building railroads um, on the East Coast were supported in terms of equity grants and all kinds of subsidies by state governments who were very anxious to see um, the railroads built. Um, indeed, if, if you compare American railroads with very early German railroads in Prussia, you would have expected to find one would have ex- I expected to find that the Germans, the Prussians, would have been um, planning their railroads as a state system. But in fact, the Prussians in the early years didn't get involved at all. They left it to the private sector. It was in the United States that government, through the states, individual states, got involved. When you get to the uh, transcontinental railroads yeah they were built by the robber barons and a a fascinating tale it is but that whole enterprise was underpinned by the state because the state was providing what are known as land grants as each successive mile of transcontinental railroad was built the state granted huge amounts of state land holdings which of course were widespread in the west of america partly because of the uh, Louisiana purchase of land from the French government, they granted uh, land grants, very valuable land grants to the railroads as they moved across America. And as the railroads were built and the land was granted, its value rose because of the existence of the railroads. I, d- I discovered when I was writing that chapter that, of course, exactly the same mechanism was used to build the top 50 US technological universities. Government granted land to those universities to give them a permanent and down of land and income so that they could um, continue to invest in technology. Uh, the most famous of those, of course, is, uh, is MIT. So government has always been intimately involved in creating the, uh, the economic bedrock of American society. Again, something which in the 70s, uh, the neoliberals refused to accept. But when you look at the empirical evidence, you look at the facts, you can see that this is the case. Well, yes, that's true. What I, I did some research for it on the Flagler Railroad, and it was really the Florida legislature, yeah, that was doing the land grants. And um, we had, there was no economy in Central and South Florida, period. And uh, that's how they started to um, get any kind of economic activity going. Yeah, that's very true. It was the government of the state of Florida. Yeah. So another success story. Um, uh, let's go to... Uh, I'll go to another highway that I like, the overseas highway that that replaced the rail on the road. What about, and this was uh, Eisenhower, the engineering of our interstate highways. Yeah, exactly. Um, Another example of the state very, very directly involved in building new infrastructure. Um, The need for new American highways was absolutely apparent in the 20s and the 30s, because of all the industrial societies, America became the the industrial society most dependent on cars and and kind of keenest on cars in a way. Um, if you think about it, you know the 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 road um, has a, an extraordinary role in uh, American popular culture, particularly uh, post-war popular culture. You know, if you read. Um, Steinbeck's book, The Grapes of Wrath. It's about people being on the road. If you read that great beat novel by Jack Kerouac on the road, it's about people being on the road. If, if you read that uh, hippie area classic, uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, again, it's all about a motorcycle road trip. Being on the road seems to have a kind of central role in, in American culture and American society. You know, it was the, it was the roads that got the uh, American... Uh, American black 
people from uh, the southern states up to places like Chicago and Detroit in the 40s and the 50s and got them into well-paid jobs. So um, it's, a, it's a central component of American life. Um, but prior to state government action, which was really led by Eisenhower, probably a somewhat um, underrated president, if it hadn't been for Eisenhower's government actually taking the initiative, then um, the, the roads would never have been built because the, 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 the different interest groups were simply constantly um, arguing with each other about what the priorities were were for building the roads. But, you know, as the um, the American historian, uh, or rather the historian of America, John Brogan says, probably the interstate highways have done more to shape the lives of American people than any other law passed since 1945, because what they did was they reinforced the ascendancy of the private car over all other forms of transport. They made continental bus services possible, boosted freight by carrying truck, gave a huge impetus to black emigration, and I've said, as, I, as I was saying, and um, gave a huge stimulus to the prosperity of the 60s, encouraging car ownership and thus the, uh, those vast sprawling suburbs. You know, there, were, there, were, there was a price to pay in terms of uh, the way in which the roads reshaped American society. But there's no question that the great post-war boom actually uh, was underpinned by that massive state government investment in road building. And if it hadn't happened, there's not much doubt that the post-war boom would not have proceeded in the way it did and at the speed it did. Um, we've now got a, we've, we've now got a, you know, every great plan produces a success story, but you go further down the line and it produces its problems. We've now got the problems of sprawl and over-intensive use of highways and uh, the... Uh, the ecological crisis caused by carbon dioxide emissions. So those are problems to be solved, but uh, you can't really deny, again, uh, that uh, these were great American plans and, and they were implemented very successfully at huge cost and and have created a terrific asset. Yeah, and, you know, I was thinking one time I drove uh, from Florida to California on, on our I-10 and I was, how easy it was for me to do that. Uh, and I thought about, you know, I had Starbucks, I had, you know, I rest stops, I've got hotels and, um, and how difficult, you know, the people in the horse and wagon who went over all that terrain, I'm like, how in the world did they do it? Well, that's in fact, that was one primary, primary reason for Eisenhower's interest in, in building the highways, because um, as a young man in, in the early 20th century, he'd been involved um, as a very young army officer in an exercise in, in, fact, in 1919 when he had joined um, an American army truck convoy crossing the United States from coast to coast to find out just how good or bad the roads were. And that convoy only managed an average speed between Washington, D.C. and San Francisco of five miles per hour. And I'm sure that experience uh, as a young man stuck with him uh, when he became president later. Ah, so he was like, "Yeah, this you got to pick up some speed here." <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. My opportunity to sort these problems out all those years on. Yeah, <laughs> no rest stops and you know anything like that. Yeah. That's just yeah. <laughs> um, so a- another one. No little plans. Power brokers, business elites, and the making of New York City. Um, yeah, well, what's I'm that all about? well, this is this is. Uh, I'm, I'm told by a, a good friend of mine that this is an exercise in revisionism because that chapter is 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 essentially about two things. It's a, it's it's about the creation of regional planning in the twenties and the thirties, led by business elites first in Chicago. Uh, the great plans for Chicago, and then the great regional plans for New York, which were created before the war. Those plans set the agenda for the creation of regional parks on a huge scale, but they also set the agenda for road building on an absolutely colossal scale in New York. And it was uh, Robert Moses who uh, was... um, vilified really by uh, Jane Jacobs and and her friends in the 60s it was it was Robert Moses who drove those plans forward in a quite extraordinary way uh, Moses was uh, 
probably not the nicest man in the world. He was a tough, arrogant, and pretty ruthless uh, bureaucrat, you know, the sort of uh, the ultimate autocratic bureaucrat. But he delivered, um, delivered physical infrastructure for New York on an absolutely colossal scale. Um, he was, as I say, vilified by uh, Jane Jacobs and company in, in the 1960s. But uh, the real reason for uh, the decline in Moses' stock, despite his, his colossal achievements, not only in building roads, but also in, in building, building bridges uh, and tunnels, was the, uh, the book written by Anthony Caro in, I think, the 70s, called The Power Broker. Uh, it, it is an absolutely magnificent biography of Moses, but it portrays him really as a man who destroyed New York. And the book was written in, in the 70s by uh, Caro, because um, at that time, of course, New York did appear to be a city on the way out. And uh, uh, Moses was really an appropriate all guy for what appeared to be the demise of New York. Well, we know that um, New York's decline in, in the 70s uh, was very short-lived and New York later came roaring back as one of the great capitals of, um, of American finance capital, the capital of capital, I suppose you could call it. Um, and subsequently, people have sort of turned around and said, well, maybe, maybe Caro wasn't entirely reasonable in the way he criticised uh, Moses. And, and uh, there's a kind of um, reinvention going on of Moses' career and achievements as, as a great city planner and builder. And people were saying, uh, people have been saying in New York, including uh, New York's uh, most recent chief planner, that, that we need someone like Moses to get big projects moving. And really, I suppose it goes back to my motivation in writing this book. How did we get things going in the past? Because we sure are going to need to get things going in the future. And we're going to have to start reinventing a positive planning style, uh, positive planning style, which which maybe we forgot. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. How to, how to kickstart, you know, good and always get better planning. That's right. Yeah. And uh, it's actually Amanda Burden, who was New York's city planner in the, the early 2000s, who said she wanted to you know, big cities need big projects and are a necessary part of their diversity and competition. So she was um, she was an admirer of Jane Jacobs, as indeed are we all. But her view was that um, we needed to start building again rather like Moses did. She said, once again, we need to build like Moses on an unprecedented scale, but with Jane Jacobs firmly in mind. Um, so... Uh, what seemed to be a disaster in the uh, late twentieth century, people are coming to to reevaluate, which is an interesting turnaround. That's a good point for for all of our cities to uh, turn around. Uh, yeah, we got. Well, you, know, you do need you know problems. you need the Jane Jacobs agenda. You need the diversity. You need the sympathy to old buildings. You need the respect for the vernacular, and you need to focus on public transport and walking. Yeah. But at the same time, you do need some big projects as well. So there are lessons, I think, in what uh, was achieved in New York for cities really in America and across the world. Oh, touche. Uh, okay, I'm going to go to another one. This is this is a fun one. Apollo 11 and our, our NASA program, the moon and the computer. Let's 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 shoot off to outer space for a little bit. What's this chapter about? <laughs> well, this this is you know the the, uh, the moonshot is surely the, the the ultimate American big project. Um, I was around as a as a schoolboy when uh, the moonshot took place and Americans walked on the moon. I must admit that I must have been a bit of a cynical schoolboy because I thought, well, that seems like an enormously expensive project that doesn't seem to have uh, generated much in terms of returns. It just seemed like a national vanity project. Well, writing this chapter has has sent me through 180 degrees because what I didn't realise um, was that the whole act of uh, getting those men to the, the moon 
had provided such a massive stimulus. It was it was a classic state-led, mission-orientated project. We are going to take people to the moon. That's the mission. We're going to do it. We don't care how much it's going to cost. Yeah, we're going to bring them back again as well, which is fairly important. Um, but what I hadn't appreciated was that that kind of mission-led planning would generate enormous benefits for the US economy um, in terms of developing a style of administration, bureaucracy and management simply capable of managing such enormous, complicated projects, but also because of the impact which um, Apollo 11 had on the development of uh, information technologies and computers, which, again, I knew nothing about. And and I I suspect many people know know little about, because the most important part of the the lunar module was the Apollo guidance computer, which got that uh, module down onto the surface of the moon and then safely off again. Um, it's probably had as much computing in it as you have in a, in a, in a modern smartphone. But um, the whole um, basis for... So it laid the, the foundations for um, the information economy, for microcomputers, and, and, and most importantly for microchips, which, of course, are at the heart of smartphones, all the digital um, equipment that surrounds us these days. The, the reason the microchips were created was they were created essentially for the opponent's guidance computer, the AGC, and they were created by the American government agencies simply saying to the uh, manufacturers of those chips, which were very unreliable in the... Uh, 60s and 70s, look, we want a perfectly reliable chip. How can you create a perfectly reliable chip? And the answer was, you just keep throwing money at at the project until we build you hundreds and thousands of chips until they are actually totally reliable, totally reliable technology. So you can see that um, behind the the, uh, images of those men on the moon lay this tiny little device inside the lunar module and an even smaller device within it, the microchip, which has really been the, the, the bedrock of America's and indeed the world's knowledge economy since then. So again, it's another example of government creating wealth on a colossal scale. We couldn't even be doing this interview today if it wasn't for that. That's a very good point. We couldn't be doing it. No, we might be doing it on antiquated telephone technology, um, <laughs> but you wouldn't get a very clear signal. <laughs> we, we'd really have a time delay then. Yeah, we would. Because <laughs> uh, for the viewing audience, we, uh, we're, we're connected via laptop. This isn't uh, – we're, li- we're recording live or recording, but um, – that's how we're connecting to do this podcast. Yeah, that's right. This is live in Liverpool and live in Miami. Yes. <laughs> that's right. Perfect sound quality. We could be sitting next to each other. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so how about this? The, uh, we'll go into this as kind of going into it. Uh, the frontiers of the mind, how government, who created the internet? So as I was saying, Wells uh, foresaw the creation of the internet in, uh, in a speech he gave in 1937. He said, a world encyclopedia no longer presents itself to a modern imagination as a row of volumes printed and published. This is a sort of mental clearinghouse for the mind, a depot where knowledge and ideas are received, sorted, summarized, digested, clarified, and compared. It would be in continual correspondence with every university, every research institution, every competent discussion, every survey, every statistical bureau. The encyclopedic organisation need not be concentrated in one place. It might have the form of a network. It would centralise mentally, but not physically. Well, that is an absolutely astonishing piece of foresight because, because Wells was foreseeing the internet before the technology uh, the digital electronic technology, which was used to create the internet, had even been dreamt of. So it's an amazing act of uh, imaginative foresight. But it was um, it was Professor Vannevar Bush who became Roosevelt's and later Truman's uh, key scientific advisor, who also foresaw it um, in conceptual terms. It was he who helped to bring the thing into reality. So. 
And really, they, it's another, just, just as the moonshot developed America's um, role in microchips and microcomputers, really, it was the internet, which was also underpinned by state investment. The internet was basically invented by uh, the uh, American government through its, uh, its Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, and was bankrolled um, probably as a means of creating a robust communication network in the event of a nuclear attack, although the scientists involved in the project would deny that. But it was, it was through DARPA, and particularly through one particular individual in DARPA, J.C.R. Licklider, um, that the whole concept was developed and driven forward. And all of this uh, technology, uh, technologi- the technological foundations to the internet, uh, the thinking, the research, was all bankrolled by government. It's true that entrepreneurs um, have made an awful lot of money out of it, people like Bezos and Microsoft, all those guys have made a great deal of money. But all they're doing really is exploiting wealth, which was created by uh, American state government intervention. So it, it is the really the ultimate example of the way in which um, American governments have um, created the economic bedrock of American society. Um, it's an absolutely fascinating tale. So those, those, those case studies that we've kind of worked our way through really summarise the core of the book. Um, what, what I move on to in the final chapter is comparing uh, what, um, what the American government is doing now, driven by the neoliberals and their utter distaste for state intervention. They just saw it as utterly wasteful with what's been happening in Asian countries. Effectively, Asian countries have kind of learned the lessons from from uh, the lessons of the importance of uh, effective state planning from from America. And they've they're, they're progressing forward. So, what is what in the last part, the American dilemma, uh, the road from serfdom? So, where where do we go from here? Well, I'm basically that part of the book looks back on these American success stories and it starts to look at what is actually happening in Asia because if you look at what's happening in in Asia, in Korea, um, in Japan, in Singapore and of course in China, you don't find neoliberal state capital, you don't find neoliberal raw capitalism there, you find directed capitalism, you find mission-oriented development where new industries have been created by partnerships, state-led partnerships, state-led companies, sometimes, of course, in China, bringing in international um, uh, direct investment into those economies. But basically, the uh, success of uh, um, Asian economies over the last probably five, six decades has come about because government has been uh, very actively involved in developing those those economies and very actively involved in providing infrastructure. You know, the sharpest contrast there is the state of the uh, American railroad system, which I experienced when I was last in uh, in America when uh, I decided to try the train between uh, New York and Chicago. And my American son-in-law said, oh, God, don't take the train. Nobody uses the train in America. It's so slow. It's so unreliable. Everybody flies. I said, I want to take the train because I want to see what it actually looks like. So I did. Well, the train was 16 hours late because of the condition of the infrastructure. You compare that to what's happening in China, where the Chinese over the last two or three decades have built a brand new um, high-speed rail system connecting uh, one province of China to another. So there's this amazing um, irony now that America feels so threatened um, by the rise of uh, economic power in Asia, but economic power in Asia is being driven by the same um, planning ideologies and and pragmatic techniques that we use to create uh, wealth in America over um, more than a century, which have now largely been um, abandoned uh, because of the attack they came under in the uh, late 1960s, 
early 1970s. It's, it's kind of interesting that um, the the commitment to mission-oriented planning is starting to arise again uh, from politicians, m- most notably from uh, left-wing politicians like uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's who's uh, chosen to shape her climate policy, the, the Green New Deal, in, in that old American tradition um, of the New Deal, uh, the moonshot, and, and, and making it in the civil rights movement of her generation. Because the Green New Deal that she's proposing would be uh, a mission-oriented, state-led um, planning process, which um, very closely mirrors all those great plans which I've uh, enumerated and dissected in the uh, in the central part of the book. Yes, all the successes, and uh, we, we were we were doing it right. We did a lot of things right. Yeah, you were doing a lot of things right, but 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 you kind of stumbled in the uh, in the sixties, uh, and and you stumbled um, because of the the rise of this uh, ideology developed by Hayek, Friedman, and uh, all the all the rest of, of that gang. Um, which was actually based. It wasn't based on evidence. It was based. It was based on rhetoric, and nobody's ever ever seemed to actually go and say, "Well, hang on a minute. Let's go and let's go and look at the evidence. How were you doing in uh, the fifties, uh, the sixties, and the seventies, and in previous decades when the government had a much better, bigger role in in the U.S. economy? And indeed, how well were you doing in the Second World War when the U.S. was the arsenal of uh, uh, of democracy in in every sense, but if you ask yourself where the money was coming from, where the investment was coming from, in order to deliver all that wartime material, which really saved the world from totalitarianism, well, the great majority of it was coming from not from the private sector, but by government investment coming through Roosevelt's um, Defence Plant Corporation. So. Uh, there, there really is no question that um, state-led activity, government-led activity in in the United States has uh, is not anathema to the the pursuit of life and liberty and happiness, but but has been central to the whole process of of wealth creation, and and that's that's essentially what I've I've the argument which I've uh, I've made in this book. Oh well, thank you. That's such a, it's, it's enlightening to have uh, an outside, you know, objective look at uh, some really good and positive things that, uh, that America's done. Thank you very much. Um, I wondered whether it was appropriate for an outsider to do that, but probably it is because you get an outsider's view. Which, I, I think um, it's ex- no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Which is which is unvarnished, isn't it, and untainted? So somebody who's just basically gone to look at the evidence and drawn conclusions from the evidence. And, and it is the evidence because uh, I I've done some research on railroads and and et cetera, and um, so I could I could vouch for it too. And this is this is a fabulous book. So uh, I mean, it's all right there. It's the evidence is right there. So. I hope that I hope, uh, I hope it's not just there, but I hope I hope it's it's written in an engaging way and something that's that's actually fairly easy to read. I have also tried to lace humour into the book as well. It's kind of quite difficult doing that lacing humour into into an almost into an academic book, but it, but it's not impossible. So anybody who reads the book will will find it. It's like kind of eating a plum pudding and finding a sixpenny piece in it occasionally. Lightens the, lightens the reader's load. I hope. Oh, I think so too. Yeah, it's it's a the book is really engaging. It's uh it's a great book. I think people should read it. Uh, so, uh, you know, I know we've taken up a lot of your time today, and and I'm my cup of tea is about gone. Yeah. Um, so, can you tell our audience what are you working on now? Well, uh, I've decided to change direction a bit. I I'm still extremely interested in cities and creativity in cities, and uh, the the next idea on my agenda is to look at uh, the rise of uh, really English pop music between 1960 and 1980. Um, All those wonderful bands, which those of us who are uh, as old as me will remember very directly, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, David Bowie, uh, 
Steve Winwood, Traffic, uh, the Small Faces, the Who, the, the list goes on and on. And the question I've posed, and I want to try and answer in this book, is, is why on earth did it happen? Why did it happen here? Um, what were the mainsprings of all that um, inten- intense explosion of uh, musical creativity, which started in Liverpool, which, uh, which is where I happen to live, and then spread across the rest of the UK, and then more or less took over the world in the uh, late 60s and the early 70s. So that's that's my next book. Um, I haven't got the title yet, but I've I've written a um, a paper to get get things going, which will be appearing next year in a special Creative Cities edition of uh, Built Environment magazine, and it's called The Pool of Life, Liverpool Rock Music and the Roots of Urban Creativity. And that, that tries to answer the question, why did this amazing explosion of uh, popular music and creativity happen in Liverpool, which is these days my home city, which was, you know, if you think about it, in the late 50s and 60s was a, a bomb-damaged, weary, northern British working-class city. Why did it happen here? So that's the question I'm I'm trying to answer, uh, and I think I have answer, answered in this uh, in this paper, which you all have to wait for, apart from you, Tricia, because I'm going to email a copy of it to you as soon as we finish this interview. Um, and, and then I'm going to try and answer on the bigger scale in in the book. So, oh, that sounds great! That that's going to be popular over here in the United States. So, you gonna, so. You know, when you finish, you're going to have to send me a copy. Um, well, thank I'll do you that. So much. You can do that. Thank you so much for being here today, and I'll let the audience know uh, this is Ian Ray, and his book is No Little Plans. How Government Built America's Wealth and Infrastructure, published by by Routledge in 2019. Government is good, too. Okay. Thank you very much, Trish. It was great talking to you. Again, thank you so much for listening today. And this is, again, Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And the book was No Little Plans, How Government Built America's Wealth by Ian Ray, published by Routledge in 2019. Thanks for listening.